0: in Durham, North Carolina, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Durham, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Durham. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good morning and welcome, everyone. I am your host, James Orr. And this is a pretty exciting class, actually. It's a class about why you might want to consider putting more down when you're buying investment properties. And we're going to talk about it from a couple different perspectives. I guess we'll look at what the overall return you're getting is as you move from 5% down Nomad to 15% down non-owner occupant with PMI to 20% down Um, investor loan with no PMI and 25% down and 30% down and 40% down. And we'll look at just a property I picked out that is going to be definitely different than the properties you're going to see. I mean, your numbers are, definitely going to be different than what i'm going to show you but i hopefully you can pull out some of the lessons of looking at this property and see how things generally go that way when you run your own property you'll actually be able to see this and i'll show you how to run your own so that you can do this your own analysis on this so we're going to look at the returns we're getting as we go through these different down payments and then what i'm going to do i'm going to show you what the extra return you're getting On that additional down payment is so we'll look at hey look we're getting this return when we buy it with this financing when we go from that financing to this financing we had to add this much extra down payment and by adding this much extra down payment we got this amount of extra return and so we can look at what the extra return is on the extra amount down and then make a decision as to whether or not we should take that money and invest it in extra down payment the idea is we could take that money we could do all these other things with it So should we take that money and put more down on the rental property to see what the extra return we would get on that money is? So that's what we're going to cover. So first, um, when I like to look at the returns you're earning on rental properties, I often like to use my return quadrants. It's kind of a visual way for us to look at all the different areas of return you get when you own rental properties, including a total at the center. So the, the five areas that you have returned, this kind of four primary ones and then reserves, which Almost everyone except for me forgets to calculate in the return you're getting on your reserves. But you have appreciation, which is the tendency for property values to increase over time. You have cash flow, which is the one I think most people are focused on. Usually this is like your cash on cash return or the amount of cash flow you're getting uh, each month, whether that's positive or negative, it can be both. Um, The next one is debt pay down, how much of the loan you're paying down each month. If you have a free and clear property, there's no debt pay down. But a lot of times when you have a mortgage on a property, you're paying down a certain portion of that loan unless you got an interest only loan. And so you're making a little bit of a return by paying down a loan each month. And then the last one is the tax benefits you get by owning the rental property. So those are the four primary appreciation, cash flow, debt pay down, and the tax benefits of depreciation, which we often call cash flow from depreciation, because it shows up like cash flow by you not having to pay taxes. And then the fifth one is obviously the return you get by having reserves set aside to buy this property. If we're going to use the reserves as part of the denominator, as part of the how much you need to have put down and have in order to invest in the property, then we also need to honor that you probably are getting some type of reserve return on your reserves as well. And that may be You know, putting it in the savings account, or maybe if you have enough, putting it in the stock market and getting a higher return. Which we're not going to talk about in this class because I don't want to get too far off topic. But that's the idea. So when I talk about these kind of returns and the returns you get, I usually talk about it in three different sort of like flavors. Number one flavor is the return you're getting in dollars. How many dollars did your property go up in value in the year? How many dollars of cash flow did you have that year? How many dollars did you pay down on the loan that year? And how many dollars in cash flow from depreciation, your net benefit after you take into account the taxes, you don't have to pay on that rental property by having that rental property. So like you add up all those and the, the amount of dollars you get from reserve. So the return in dollars looks at the number of dollars you're getting. But a lot of times we wanna look at how much money you're getting divided by how much you had to invest in order to make that deal happen. So that would be what we call return on investment. So the dollars amount in appreciation you got divided by your total cost to close plus reserves. So the amount of money you had to use for down payment, the amount of money you had to use for your closing costs, um, any buy downs, anything like that you had on the property, plus any money you have in reserves, that gives us the return we're getting from appreciation. So the dollar amount in appreciation divided by the total amount to close plus your reserves on the bottom, that gives you a kind of like return on investment for appreciation. Do the same thing with cash flow, do the same thing with debt pay down, do the same thing with the tax benefits, uh, like cash flow from depreciation, and the same thing for reserves. You get an idea of what the returns are. We can add all those up and you find out what the overall total return was on the initial investment. Now, the return you're getting in year one, on how much you put into the deal in order to acquire the deal makes a lot of sense. But if you think about what the return you're getting on a property you've owned for 10 years, does it really matter what you put into the deal in the beginning at that point? You know, if you're getting, you know, $40,000 in appreciation because the property has gone up a lot in value, does it matter that you only invested, you know, $500 in order to acquire that deal 25 years ago? not really. And so return on investment, the importance of that metric goes away after year 1. We no longer think to ourselves, you know, what's the return we're getting on the amount that we invest anymore. Really what we'd like to think about then is the returns we're getting on how much equity we have in the property. So, if you say to yourself, okay, now I've got, you know, the property value has gone up, I paid down the loan, now I've got $100,000 in equity, now we're more concerned about what the return we're earning from appreciation and cash flow and debt pay down and tax benefits and reserves, what the return we're getting on the equity we have tied up in that property. Because we could go and sell that property, release the equity, take that equity and go invest in something else. And so really what we want to think about now is what the return we're getting is if we decided to take that money and invest it somewhere else so that we can compare the return we're getting on the rental property to other options that we have in the world. Other things we could go buy. We can go buy another rental property. We can go buy stocks. We can go buy bonds. We can go buy any exotic investments you want to get, okay? And so after year one, I tend to like to switch over and start thinking of, okay, now what's my return that I'm getting on the equity I have tied up my property? And not to get too off the rails, but technically it's not even return on equity. Technically it's return on what I call true net equity after all of your expenses of getting out of the property because it's really not the return you're getting on the amount of equity you have in the property. It's really the return you're getting if you were to take that money out of that investment, and you were going to go invest in something else. So we really need to know how much you'd walk away with in equity from that property, your your equity after you pay all your expenses, like your closing costs, your real estate commissions, the capital gains taxes you got due, and any depreciation recapture on any depreciation you took. So we want to look at equity after all those expenses. So We're not going to get into that today. We'll do entire classes on that concept, but I just wanted to introduce it to you. So now that I covered this, it's really like three flavors of the returns. Return in dollars, which we'll talk about today, and return on investment, which we'll talk about today. We're not going to go into the return on equity stuff today because we're really just primarily focusing on when you acquire a property. So previously in classes, I think it was probably, must have been late last week we went over the loan comparison spreadsheet as shown on the screen here. And this is just a way, an organized way for you to call up a lender and ask them about the different loans you're considering getting. And then you could fill in a spot on the spreadsheet for what the interest rate is for them, what the monthly PMI rate is, kind of make any notes about any points or anything like that that you'd have to pay in order to get that. You put in your property value and it does a whole bunch of calculations for you to show you what your monthly payment would be so that you can easily compare you know, all the owner-occupant loans or all of the investor loans or all the loans if you're considering any option that would work for you. So this is just to show you like this kind of summary spreadsheet. I am going to use the numbers from this spreadsheet um, as just like the example from today. Now, it is impossible for me to go ahead and pick an interest rate or set of interest rates because they vary depending on the loan. It's impossible for me to pick a set of interest rates for you where when you finally listen to this recording that those interest rates are going to be valid for you. First of all, you probably don't have the same credit score exactly that the person that we modeled this kind of spreadsheet from. And interest rates change every day, sometimes throughout the day, depending on the lender you're using. And so it's not possible for us to do this. And I will also tell you the differences between certain loans does vary a little bit day to day as well. The cost to get those loans. So realize I can't, you can't use the numbers I'm giving you. You can't just automatically assume that the returns I'm going to tell you for like, you know, adding an extra 5% down or or going from, you know, 5% to 15% down or 15% to 25% down. You can't just assume that the returns I'm giving you are going to be valid for you. You have to do this math yourself. And in some cases, your lender or your real estate agent can help you. If they're unwilling or unable to help you, you can reach out to us and we'll do a consultation with you and help walk you through the math and how to do this for your own situation, but in a lot of cases, your real estate agent or your lender will be able to assist you in doing this math if you want to. Okay. So we've got all the loan information on here. Let's walk through. These are the different interest rates. I just entered a lot of these numbers in the real estate financial planner calculator um, so that we can actually do the math on all this stuff easily. So it just shows you a summary though of what the interest rates were for 5% down Nomad, 15% non-owner occupant, 20% down non-owner occupant investor, 25% down non-owner occupant, 30% down and 40%. And so you can see that the interest rate is lowest for that owner occupant, 5% down nomad property. It is highest for that 15% down. And then it kind of goes down gradually as you put more down. So not only is the interest rate improving, but also you only have private mortgage insurance anytime you put less than 20% down. So in that case, in this case, it is gonna be the 5% down loan and the 15% down loan are the ones that are gonna have private mortgage insurance. And this is the private mortgage insurance rate shown here. So it is 0.4% for the 5% down loan as of the time of this recording and 0.47% for the 15% down. So the private mortgage insurance for you putting 5% down as an owner occupant is less than the private mortgage insurance you'd pay if you put 15% down as an investment property. So you think to yourself, look, James, I thought you told me that the private mortgage insurance was the insurance that I pay as the borrower to protect the lender in case I default. And I thought you said to me, hey, look, the lender would prefer you put 20% down, but they say, okay, I'll be I'll willing to make you an exception. I'll loan you, um, I'll make you a loan with less than 20% down, but you have to buy. This insurance for me, that means if you default, they're going to help make me whole in case I need to sell the property and, and you know because I have to foreclose on you and then I have to get my money back out. So I want to make sure that they're going to protect me and make me whole in case there's a loss for me. So you think that the insurance would be cheaper if you put more down, if you put 15% down. But there's a difference. Private mortgage insurance is not just the difference in how much you put down. It's also whether you're an owner-occupant or an investor. It's also your credit score. So there's a lot of things that go into its number of people on the loan. So there's a lot of factors that go into the private mortgage insurance rate. And what I wanted to point out to you is this is counterintuitive, I think, to a lot of folks in that the private mortgage insurance for someone putting 5% down is lower than someone putting 15% down as because we went from an owner-occupant with the 5% down to a non-owner-occupant investor with the 15% down. Okay, so in dollars, though, it's about $148 a month versus $155 a month and some change. So dollars we're talking about, oh, I don't know what that, whatever that is here, $7 more per month. Not a huge difference in this particular case. Again, this can vary. So when you call up your lender, your numbers may be very different than what I'm showing you here, okay? All right. An important notice in the real estate financial planner software, I modeled this out and I'm showing you the return you're getting um, over the first year. However, I started in month two. Why did I start in month two and not month one? The reason why is in the real estate financial planner software, we do our modeling like the real world. In the real world, the first month you have a mortgage on a property, you buy a property on the first of the month. That first month, you do not have a mortgage payment due. Why? Because the payment is due after interest has accrued for a month. You're not paying interest upfront. You're paying interest in arrears. So the first month that you own a property, there's no interest due. The first month is when the interest accrues. And at the end of the first month, basically the first of the second month, the first day of the second month is when you make a payment that includes the interest for the prior month and the small, small amount of principal that you're paying down on the loan. In most cases, okay. So the reason we're starting in month two is cash flow in month one looks exceptionally good, and I did not want to bias our numbers by using the return you're getting for the first month that you owned a property and have it skew that it looks like you got a lot more cash flow on a property because you didn't. Okay, even though in reality, when you buy a property, your cash flow, if you buy a property on the first of the month, and you rent that thing out right away, then the return you get for that first month is amazing, because it's almost as if you don't have a mortgage that first month, you do but interest is accruing and you haven't had to make a payment yet. All right. And then after you've owned the property for a month, then you make the payment. Okay. Um, And we'll cover this in future classes because there's some subtlety to this. If you get the loan mid-month and they usually have you prepay interest for a certain amount of time and then you don't really make a payment until usually more than 30 days later on the first of whatever that next month is, there's some subtlety there, but I'm not gonna get into that for today, okay? So point out, we're not starting in month one, we're starting in month two and we're counting 12 months from month two. Also, we've assumed that you can rent the property that you did as a nomad in the first month which is not true, right? Usually nomad, you're buying a property as an owner-occupant. You're moving into the property. You're living there for at least a year. It's a requirement of the lender when you get the loan that you're agreeing to do an owner-occupant loan. You're signing a piece of paper at closing. If you don't abide by that loan thing, you're committing loan fraud, which is punishable by prison. So you do not want to do that. Um, So you're agreeing to stay in the property and live there for a year, which means you're probably not getting rent unless you're getting roommates for that first year. However, for the sake of this analysis, I assume that you could rent the property in year one. Not true, but for the sake of just doing the analysis and doing the math, we've assumed that you're renting the property from as soon as you buy it. Okay, with that being said, let's take a look at the returns we earned on doing a Nomad 5% down return in dollars quadrant. Remember that kind of like the number of dollars that we did? So here are the different returns we earned by buying that property starting in month two, going through month 13. And it shows you that the property appreciated about $14,000. We assumed, uh, I think I did the median priced home in the U.S. And so we assumed a 3% appreciation, which I think is pretty reasonable over a long period of time. It's possible property values can go up more than that. It's possible that property values can actually go down in value. But I've assumed that for this case, we're trying to do in a pro forma. Looking forward, I said, look, what do we think the property might appreciate? I said, let's use 3%. That's a very defensible, conservative position. So let's use that. So $14,100 is how much the property appreciated in the first year. Cash flow wise, this property, because you only put 5% down and it's not an amazing cash flow property to begin with, we didn't do all of our 88 strategies to maximize cash flow. This one has negative $6,791 in cash flow. Remember, we only put 5% down on this property. If we put 100% down, we'd have great cash flow. If we put 50% down, we'd have great cash flow. If we put 75% down, we'd have good cash flow. But because we put so little down, we basically have what I like to refer to as deferred down payment, because you chose to put less down and to receive less cash flow. In this case, it's negative. If you put more down, you get more cash flow. So instead of putting more down, you chose to get negative cash flow in this. So appreciation was $14,100. Cash flow is negative $6,791. The amount you paid down in the loan in that first 12 month period technically one month later, as I talked about already, is $5,985. You paid down almost $6,000 on the loan. And the tax benefits you got by owning this property um, after after your taxes, basically, this is your net um, after your tax rate is $2,168. And- we said that you put six months of reserves away and we had that in a savings account earning 1%. So you got $223 in reserves, the, the return you earned on the reserves you set aside for owning that rental property. So the total amount you earned by doing this property is $15,686 in the first year. That is the return in dollars by owning this particular property. Now, what if we took those dollar amounts and we divided through by the total amount you had to close plus basically any reserves you have there. So we're looking at the total return you've earned in dollars divided by the total amount you had to close plus any reserves. And so for appreciation, we earned 28.01% return on our money in that first year. I'll repeat that. 28% return on our money in the first year. That's because we only put 5% down and the property went up 3% in value. So we put so little down, but the property still went up $14,000 and change. So 28% return for appreciation. Now, negative cash flow. So cash flow is ugly. It's negative negative 13.49% in cash flow. Because the cash flow is negative, we have a negative return there. Then we have debt pay down. You earned 11.89% on the amount of money that you paid down on the loan in the first year on the amount that you had to invest. And then the tax benefits. So you got 4.31% return from that cash flow from depreciation on the total amount you invested in order to get the deal plus your reserves. And then your return on the reserves itself was 044 percent Okay. The overall total return from appreciation, cash flow, debt pay down, tax benefits, and those six months of reserves is 31.16%. So even though you had really ugly negative cash flow on this property, you're earning 31% return on your money in that first year. Okay. Not bad. Now let's look at the difference in returns you earn going from this 5% down nomad. to now I'm saying let's do 15% down and buy a rental property and not move in. We're kind of comparing what the return difference is going to be doing one loan program versus another. And so, appreciation is the same. It doesn't matter if you put 5% down, if you put nothing down, if you put 20% down, if you put 50% down, if you put 100% down, it doesn't matter how much you put down, the property still goes up in value or goes down in value from appreciation, the same amount. It doesn't matter how much you put down on a deal, appreciation is going to be the same for both those. So appreciation is still $14,100, regardless of what loan program you did. However, you put more down and the interest rate changed when you went from 5% down to 15% down. So your cash flow went from negative $6,791 per year to negative $3,377 per year. So your cash flow improved by whatever that is $3,300 or so per year. Okay. Now, next one is debt pay down. You were paying down almost $6,000 on your loan in the first year doing that Nomad strategy. Now, because you put 15% down and because the interest rate changed, you're only paying down $4,339, which is a difference of, I don't know, $1,600 or so in change. So you paid down $1,600 less in that first year because you changed loans from 5% to 15%. So it's a difference in your return because these things change as you change your down payment amount. And then your tax benefits, they don't change regardless of how much money you put down. You still get the same tax benefits by owning an investment property that you do, whether you put zero down, 5% down, 15% down, 25% down, 50% down, or 100% down. Still $2,168 on this property. However, the amount you have to set aside for reserves does change because we're saying reserves are six months of your total cost to run a property. And if your payment changes, it means you have to set aside less if your payment goes down. So you end up earning a little bit less on reserves. You earned $223 for the year as a return on your reserves when you put 5% down versus $206 in reserves from your reserves uh, when you put 15% down. So the overall difference, you went from earning $15,686 by owning the property with 5% down to now you got $17,436, squint really hard, about $2,000 more by putting an extra 10% down on the property. You went from 5% to 15% down. So basically you made $1,750 more, but you had to put up $45,063 more in order to get that extra $1,750. So when you think about that, you're like, okay, is it worth for me to earn $1,750 more in the first year on this particular property by putting up $45,000? Well, that's a return of 3.88% on the extra down payment. On that extra $45,000 you're going to put down, you're getting a 3.88% return on doing that. In my opinion, that's probably not worthwhile, right? Right. You're basically putting up $45,000 and you're only getting $1,750 more by doing that. But you have to decide that and you have to run your own numbers to determine that. Okay, so this is the math we're going to do. We're going to say, look, what's the return we're earning in total from doing this particular property with this financing? What's the return by doing different financing on the same property? And then we're going to say, how much more did I have to put down on that? And how much more did I earn by putting that down? And we're going to determine- Should we put that extra amount down or not? You get to decide. Okay. So now we're going to look at the difference in return amounts. So before we were earning 31.16% total return from appreciation and cash flow and debt pay down, the tax benefits and on the reserves. So when we did the Nomad strategy, we were earning a 31.16% return in that first year on the total amount of money we had to put into the deal, including reserves. Now, when we put 15% down, we're earning 18.28% return, a lot less, not quite half as much, but a little bit less than half as much. So your overall return on investment decreased from 31% to 18% by putting more down. Now your cash flow improved, but it's still slightly negative. So I think a lot of folks are really focusing on this cash flow number. They're like, look, it's cash flow, it's cash flow, it's cash flow. Especially when it's harder to do cash flow in our current marketplace, prices are way up, interest rates are way up, rents are up, but they're not quite as much up to counteract both those high prices and those higher interest rates. But they're really focused in on cash flow. And yeah, cash flow does improve when you go from 5% down to 15% down, but your return gets cut significantly overall. You're much less leverage, also much less risky. If you measure risk as you know, different things like your resiliency to changes in rent or your resiliency to changes in prices or the amount of reserves you have set aside or um you know your debt a load to your net worth or your debt load to your liquidity, like all of those different measures of risk, when you put less down, those tend to get better. So less risky. All right. So I've gone through the first one a little slower. Now let's just summarize what's happening on all of these. So if you look at the other one, we're doing $15,686 was the return um, we earned on Nomad, $17,436 on the 15% down. You'll see that's these numbers here. So when we do the Nomad strategy, that's this one. That's $15,686 total. The one where we put 15% down is $17,436. Then this is the one for 20%, 25%, 30%, and 40%. And all of these bars show you the breakdown. So it's $14,100 for appreciation for each of the individual properties. It just summarizes all of them for you. And then this is, the red one is the debt pay down. So almost $6,000 in debt pay down on that Nomad one, You know $4,300 on the 15% down, about $4,000 on the 20%, a little less than $4,000 on the 25%, about 3,700 and change on the 30% down and about 3,300 and change on the 40% down. So you can see the amount of debt pay down is decreasing over time. The cash flow number was really negative when we did Nomad, Not less negative, but still significantly negative uh, when we did the 15% down. It's slightly positive, you know, $288 for the year, about, I don't know, whatever that is, $24 or so uh, for per month for the year when you put 20% down. So basically, it's almost break-even if you look at it this way when you do the uh, 20% down. Then you get some positive cash flow when you go to 25% down. That's probably $200 a month. Then it increases a lot more for 30% down and a lot more for 40% down. So you can see the cash flow changes. And then the amount you get in in cash flow from depreciation, the tax benefits is the same, okay? So you can see how these returns vary. Now what we're going to do is we're going to look at the returns we're earning, the dollar amounts, on how much we had to put into the deal in order to buy it, including total cost of close and the reserves. That's what we're going to do next. Same chart. But the numbers are going to now change from the dollar amount of returns, return in dollars quadrant, to now the return on investment quadrant, okay? That's this. So when we did the Nomad, we were getting a 31.16% return on the amount of money we had to invest in the deal, including reserves. Oh, I should point out that this little gray line here is the return we're earning on reserves. It's just so small compared to everything else that it doesn't even show up on the chart, okay? But- you can sort of see it here, it shows up a little bit uh, on this one, but overall, it's, it's, it's a really small change in your return, but it does impact your other returns, right? Because the amount of money we're earning, we now need to divide by not only the total cost to close, but in addition to that, those six months of reserves. So if you're used to seeing significantly higher numbers for your returns, you may be saying, James, these returns are like horrible. Well, part of the reason they're horrible is because in order for you to prudently invest in real estate, you should have reserves for your rental properties. And if you don't, you're doing it wrong. And if you don't include that in your calculation, you're also doing your calculations wrong. Thinking about the return you're earning on a rental property and not taking into account that you really do have to have, not optional, but have to have, reserves set aside in order to prudently own that property is not appropriate. It's silly. So now when you go and you say, okay, this is how much return I'm earning. Now I need to divide by either my equity or the total amount to close and also the reserves I have on that property as well. Okay. So now that it's on the denominator, that makes your return look overall less, it suppresses your return. It's it kind of like slows it, it drags it down because now you also have to take into account those reserves when you do that. Okay. So the return you're getting, if you put 15% down, is 18.28. The return you're getting when you put 20% down is 17.81. The return you're getting when you put 25% down is 16.37. And the reason these are trending down is you're putting more down into the deal. And so the, the dollar amount for some of these things is actually the same appreciation and your uh, cash flow from depreciation. Look, those two are exactly the same no matter what you do with the financing. However, your cash flow changes and the amount you pay down the debt also change. But the amount you put into the deal on the denominator has gotten a lot larger. So your overall return on investment is going down. So 16.37 for the 25% down, 15.29 for the 30% down, and 13.63 for 40% down. So you see the overall return is going down for these. Okay. Although the cash flow return is increasing. All right. Now, remember before we did that difference, we said, hey, look, you put 17, you got $17,50, $1,750 more, but you had to put up $45,000 more. That means the return you got on that extra down payment when we went from 5% down to 15% down was 3.88. We're going to do this same math for all of the different loans. That's here. So when we go from 5% down to 15% down, you earned 3.88% on that extra down payment. Probably not worthwhile in my opinion. However, when you go from 15% down, if you're going to do the 15% down loan to go to the 20% down loan, that extra 5% down. In order to get your extra return, you're earning 15.74% on that extra 5% down payment. That to me is probably worthwhile to go from, to come up with 5% more down payments, you get an extra 15.74% return on that extra money. That's what we're saying. When you go from 20% down to 25% down, you only earn 8.83% return on that money, which is not like horrible, but it's not amazing. Right? I mean, I think an 8% return, almost 9% return seems relatively good, but not like amazingly great or horribly bad. To go from 25% down to 30% down is 8.55% better. It's the ret- It's not better. It's 8.5% return on the extra down payment. And then 30% down to 40% down is 767 return on the extra down payment there. So you can get a feel for that. Now, you could go and compare this, like you could say, look, I'm going from a a 5% down loan, I'm considering doing 25% down, what's the difference in down payment between the 5% and the 25% and then what's the difference in returns I'm getting on those, you could calculate that out, you could do any of these variations, I didn't do all of them because we'd be here all day, but I did do ones going from this Nomad one to each of the individual other loans. So now this one is saying, look, to go from that 5% down to the 15% down, we already know that one. It's 3.88%. But what if you go from doing Nomad with 5% down to putting the full 20% down? And you want to figure out what the overall return is on that difference in that 15% difference and the return difference you got between those. Well, that's a 7.72% return on the extra down payment. When you go from 5% to 25% down, that's an 8%, 8 return on that extra down payment go from 5% down to 30%, 8.11, and go from 5% down to 40%, that's 7.98. So when you go over these bigger spreads, a lot of times they get compressed, is the generalization. Again though, you absolutely must call your lender, get rates for your credit score that day and the property that you're considering buying to do this math on your own. But it is a worthwhile exercise if you have the option of doing lots of different loan programs and buying lots of different kind of like setups. If you only can do nomad, if you only have 5% down and you're doing nomad, you don't really need to do a lot of these calculations, right? If you're only going to go buy a property and you're not going to do an, an owner-occupant nomad, you could probably eliminate the 5% down and just look at 15% down, 20% down, 25% down, 30%, 40%. If you don't have 30 or 40% down, you could probably eliminate those unless you're willing to take the time, delay, save up more money and do that which honestly might not be the worst thing in the world. Okay? I think this is the last slide, then we have a a quick conclusion. What I wanted to show you is that this this is the return on investment for cash flow, which another way people call this is the cash on cash return on investment. It's the cash you're getting back, the cash flow on the property, divided by the amount you put in the deal. Cash on cash return on investment. Okay? Now, As you put more money down, cash on cash usually approaches cap rate. And if your cash on cash is higher than your cap rate, then it actually goes down to meet cap rate. If your cash on cash is lower than your cap rate, then it actually increases up to meet cap rate. Cap rate is the return you're getting in cash flow on a property when you do not have a mortgage on the property. It's the net operating income divided by the price of the property. So net operating income, when you don't have a mortgage, is cash flow. And the price of the property is the price of the property. Um, When you don't have a mortgage on it, that's what happens. You don't have to subtract out any mortgage payments. So really what I wanted to point out to you here is cash on cash return approaches cap rate as you put more down. 100% down is cap rate. So if you see here in this chart for the ones we just did today, your return, your cash on cash return investment was negative 13.49% when you did Nomad, negative 3.54% when you put 15% down, positive 0.25% when you put 20% down, 1.75% if you put 25% down, 2.8% when you put 30% down, and 4.8% when you put 40% down. The cash on cash return is approaching that cap rate. That's what's going on here. Okay? All right, so in conclusion, your numbers will be different. However, putting more down tends to lower your overall return on investment, less leverage. This makes sense. It's like I'm not telling you anything that's not obvious to you. It tends to improve your cash flow in terms of dollars and cash on cash return on investment that approaches cap rate. However, if your cash on cash return on investment was above your cap rate, putting more down will reduce your cash-on-cash return. Let me say that again. If your cash-on-cash return on investment, when you do your calculation, is higher than your cap rate, which it sometimes is when you're able to find great deals with great cash flow on them. As you put more dollars down then, your cash-on-cash return on investment will actually come down to to approach cap rate. In this case, it went up, but realize that's not always the case. Okay, the return you earn on extra down payment can vary. You'll need to run your own numbers using your property, your mortgage interest rates with your your credit score. And then once you run your math, you can decide if the return you're getting by putting more down is desirable to you and is worthwhile. The worthwhile part, in my opinion, is you look at the return you're getting on that extra down payment and you decide. Is putting $45,000 more down worth me getting $1,750 more in return? And in most cases for that number, I probably would say no. It's up to you though, right? To your decision. The desirable part is a little bit more subtle. Because as you saw here, where the return goes when you put more down changes. Appreciation and tax benefits, they stay the same. So you're not really messing with those. However, it's a balancing act between... How much cash flow you get and how much debt pay down you get for how much you put down. These vary a lot with down payment. And you put more down, you tend to get less debt pay down and you tend to get more improved cash flow. And so you got to figure a lot of people are focused in on this cash flow number and they decide, hey, look, I'm going to go put more down because I want to get improved cash flow or pick another property that has better economics, right? I think that's another solution for a lot of folks. Plus all the 88 strategies that we're not going to cover today. Okay. All right, so that's all I got for you. Thank you all for coming. I do appreciate it. I assume there's no questions. No one's been asking any questions. No one's been interacting. So thank you all for coming. This has been James Orr. Have a great day, everybody. Bye bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up, and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates, cash flow on rental properties in Durham is harder than ever. Book a call with the real estate financial planner to apply our proprietary ADH strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals. See the show notes for a link to schedule your call and improve your cash flow today. If you're a real estate agent, lender, or professional in Durham that wants to help our real estate investor listeners, consider reaching out to learn about collaboration opportunities with this podcast. We'd love to add more value to our listeners by having you assist our investors by sell, and finance their real estate investments. See the show notes to schedule a call, discuss collaboration opportunities,